Hello, I'm Nicole Abadie and I write about books for Good Weekend. Welcome to the Books, Books, Books podcast in which I interview the best writers from Australia and overseas about their latest books. Thank you for joining me. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the country where I live and work and from where I'm joining this conversation, the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past and present, to the elders of all communities and cultures across Australia and to leaders of the future. You can listen to this podcast, all of the episodes at nicoleabadie.com.au or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I'm delighted to welcome celebrated Australian writer Alex Miller to Books, Books, Books to discuss his latest book, Max, his first complete work of nonfiction. It's published by Alan and Unwin. I've enjoyed Alex's books for many years. Autumn Lang and The Passage of Love are two of my favourites, which I highly recommend to all listeners. And it's a great pleasure to be talking to him today. Alex, welcome to Books, Books, Books. Thanks, Nicole. It's lovely to be here with you. Max is Alex's 14th book. His first, Watching the Climbers on the Mountain, was published in 1988. Alex has won numerous literary awards and prizes, including the Miles Franklin twice, in 1993 for the Ancestor Game and in 2003 for Journey to the Stone Country. The Ancestor Game also won the Commonwealth Writers' Prize in 1993. In 2012, Alex was awarded the prestigious Melbourne Prize for Literature and he's also received the Centenary Medal for an outstanding contribution to Australian cultural life. Alex is published internationally and widely in translation. This latest book, Max, has been described by Robert Mann as a perfectly poised masterpiece. I couldn't have put it better myself, and it's, uh, it's really wonderful to be here talking to you about it, Alex. Could yeah. you start by telling us what this book is about and who Max is? I met Max, uh, he's, he was my most important influence, friendship. Um, these days we say mentor. Uh, he was <clears throat> my father's age. I met him when I was 21. My first wife was a close friend of his wife, his second wife, Ruth Blatt. And um, we um, saw them regularly for years uh, at their place most often at their place in um, Lucan Street in Caulfield. Uh, yeah, and uh, Max and I kind of fell in love at the first meeting, if you like. I mean, we fell into friendship. Um, both of us kind of, um, I, I think it's a slight, it's, it's a matter of mystery, isn't it? It's not really explicable in a few words how friendships come about. I think um, with Max, he was a broken man, as he said himself, and he lived in this vast and fascinating silence, fascinating to me, and I detected that the first, very first night we met. We went there for dinner. My first wife said, I want you to meet my cultured European friends. This was Max and Ruth, and also the other people who lived in the same house, Peter and Robert Kona. I... Um, what I, what I saw, however, was this fascinating depth of understanding and a richness of thought implicit in his silence. Some silence is a blankness, the silence of someone who has nothing to say. 
His was a silence of somebody who had everything to say but didn't say it. And his wife talked nonstop. I mean, her great fear, and I expressed this, I think, in the passage of love, which you mentioned before, was that she would fall into the area of silence, which he occupied. And his great fear was that he would become a pointless gabbler if he started talking. Would you tell us a little bit about his background, Alex? What was it uh, in his life that had damaged him? Yeah, he um, grew up in uh, Silesia, which was Silesian, which was a part of Germany, which is now part of Poland. And the borders between Poland and Germany had been contested for a thousand years, Germanic, the Germanic East, if uh, Germanic West, if you like, and the Slavic East. It had been uh, along the along the um, river. It's not much of a river, really. Um, and um, that that the country between Germany and uh, Eastern Germany and um, Western Poland uh, is the same. You cross the river, and um, there's no difference. Nothing changes except the culture, the language, profoundly. Language is critical. It's at the basis of all this stuff that we're going on about. It's at the basis of Nazism. It's at the basis of everything in a way that convinces us of the quality of the culture and civilization that we live in. And it can be tormented and broken and turned into the most horrible um, rhetoric, as we know, here as well as anywhere else. Um, Max was um, um, a man who, a Jewish boy, who grew up in um, Rislau, which is now Wrocław in Poland. And um, his family were there. His grandfather lived about 10 minutes away. And um, they got on wonderfully. They had a wonderful, warm relationship. He had his love for Baruch was obvious. And um, his um, had problems with his mum and dad, but only in the sense that <coughs> they saw his destiny as being uh, as a rabbi, which he didn't. And uh, I mean, I bring all this out in the book. It's part of the story. Uh, it's part of what I discovered because I only knew him. I knew his Australian presence. I knew he escaped. He told me of, over the years. I mean, this book, as you know, is written not in chapters, but in fragments because there's an underlying truth about anything that comes out of that period from Europe and the world, in fact. There's an underlying truth, which is that there are no complete stories. That is a denial of the truth. To have a complete, final, finished story with all the ends tied in and the bits and pieces connected up nicely the way they might be in a good mm -hmm. novel is simply not um, possible because there's a lot of the most beautiful things in the culture and civilization of Europe that were blown into dust, not just fragments, but dust, and can never be recollected. Uh, so there's always important gaps, important things missing. And he bequeathed to me over the years of our friendship a number of what I think of as sacred fragments, like pieces of a once beautiful vessel that maybe he hoped, and there was an indication of this in our relationship, 
he hoped would be able to be pieced together by me one day, as crazy as it sounds. He believed in me as potentially a serious writer. And I say serious because he saw writing, I think, in the old-fashioned way that uh, George Steiner and people like that saw it as some kind of sacred pursuit. Alex, we're going to come to talk to that um, to talk about that quite soon. Let's just for now to get the sort of chronology in people's minds. He was born in 1907, and in when he was age 16, he joined the Communist Party of Germany. And what did he then do in, as Nazism was beginning to emerge and as Hitler became Chancellor of Germany? What was Max doing at that time, and what happened to him as a result? Well, he was committed to the Communist Party and to, um, he, he must have lied about his age. All the records, except the Gestapo record and the uh, record of his family at the Ringelblum uh, Jewish uh, Museum uh, archive in Warsaw, they got it right. Their records were correct. All the um, scholars who write about these things got him as having been born uh, in 1905 which uh, he had, his mum and dad hadn't met at that stage, so that wasn't really a possibility. Um, yeah, he was committed, as uh, many uh, Jewish intellectuals and um, non-Jewish people, of course, too, were to the workers' parties of Germany. There was a great... Germany had the most developed workers' party in the world, far, far better and in advance of England and Australia and anywhere else. That all totally fell to pieces in 1933. And uh, 1933, when Hitler came to power, uh, Max, by then, joined a secret, very, very clandestine secret um, group opposing the Nazis. And he, um, what, what happened was the Gestapo raided the um, offices of the left-wing parties and got the names and addresses, of course, of um, all the members, because at that stage they weren't clandestine, but not of the group to which Max belonged, which was called Neubeginnen, which actually is the imperative of the verb begin anew, or begin again, and um, rather than new beginning in a kind of neutral tone, it's uh, imperative, it must be done. And he uh, joined this group, was invited to join it, in fact, and was sent to Berlin to train in the ways of the group, the secret hidden. And, and there are very, very few records, of course, of these things because written records were really dangerous and the Gestapo were fantastic at intercepting letters, reading them and passing them on to the person to whom they'd been addressed as if nothing else, had, nothing had happened. I mean, meanwhile, they were following you up and Max was arrested. Um, he wasn't arrested first, though. His brother, who was also M. Blatt, um, they went to his house in Fischergasse and um, arrested Martin, who was there. He was home, are you M. Blatt? And Martin said, yeah. He said, oh, come with us, and tortured him, beat him up for several days before they asked him to sign something saying he was Max Blatt. He said, I'm not Max, but my brother. Um, I'm Martin. So um, Max was then, because of his contacts, uh, 
and that the Nazis weren't actually killing people at that point, killing uh, Jewish people immediately if they caught them. Um, they were following them up and they let him go. They let Martin go. Uh, and Alex, what happened to Max? What happened to Max was Max was then arrested himself and um, tortured for months. In fact, I, the timing that I've kind of worked out mm. from the records we do have is, I think, about three months, uh, which is a hell of a long time, mm. an impossible amount of time to imagine for someone like me to imagine. It goes into an area of where uh, empathy kind of has fails you. You, ca you. you can't imagine how deeply traumatised a person must be because of that. There's a wonderful book by Jean-Emerie called uh, To the Mind's Limits, uh, which um, describes the effect on himself of torture and on people generally. It's a wonderful book. I want to stay on that subject. I want to look at this concept of the psychological impact of torture on a human being. There's something very significant that Max tells you. He says, what broke me was when I realised that my brother was my tormentor. And he tells you something about what it's like to experience torture. He says there comes a point where the body no longer registers physical pain, but the mental struggle continues. And the victim then wonders if he has attained a supreme clarity about human nature, which Alex describes of the lucidity of the damned. Could you just tell us a little bit or talk to us a bit about what uh, Max meant when he said what broke me? was when I realised that my brother was my tormentor. What was he getting at there? My understanding of that, and that was one of those fragments that he gave me, um, a fragment of his history, and it was difficult for him to talk about it. I never heard him talk about his history in, in company, only ever when we were alone. And um, he said to me, uh, you know, that I, I really lost my faith in the human project when I was tortured and what I think he and we can interpret this in many different ways and whether our own interpretation is correct or final in any way is never impossible it's never possible to really say but I always felt that he meant the common humanity of people persons is a myth that it doesn't really work under pressure that uh Given certain circumstances, one person will act towards another as an inhuman rather than as a human, fellow human. And when he says brother, I took it to mean brother in our common humanity, fellow human being, and um, which at that level, I mean, he, he said, and I remember it very clearly, and I had an image in my mind of him kind of lying um, in a completely vulnerable position somewhere in this awful room while they tortured him every day. There was a session, whether it was uh, sort of beating him up or what, I don't know, because thank God he never went into any details. There are no images left in my mind of those details. But clearly there was, he was broken physically. He was very, very ill and had many broken bones and uh, was chucked out into the street um, by them when they'd done with him. Uh, in a state where he would have died if he hadn't received immediate medical attention. The amazing things about that period is that the policemen who mm -hmm. patrolled outside the Gestapo headquarters in 
uh, in um, Breslau, which is still there, that, that uh, headquarters is mm -hmm. still there, untouched by the war, not a bullet hole in it, um, which is amazing because Breslau was absolutely decimated. He was, in fact, a secret uh, member mm -hmm. of the same group, which is amazing. All that stuff is sort of astonishing to us. And um, he let them know and uh, his friends came and picked him up and took him to Bern in Switzerland, which is where the letters that I got from the Bundesarchive, where they were written, his answers were written from Bern, except the final one, which was from Prague. I think. Alex, let's come back to this concept of what he said to you about what broke me was when I realised that my brother was my tormentor. It seemed that what he was saying, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that having experienced what he experienced, having looked into another man's eyes and seen this complete lack of humanity, I think it seems that what Alex was that what Max was saying to you was that once you have had that experience, it's impossible to live a normal life. That that you could experience a fellow human being being so without empathy as to torture another, that once that has happened to you, you can never again live a normal life. Well, um, I think Jean Amery, uh, he he expresses it in that way. That wouldn't have been my way because I don't really know. I don't have the insight into that. Um, how could I have? It's not possible. Um, and Max didn't go into that sort of detail that Jean Amery goes into. And it's he who says that um, if once you've been tortured, you can no longer feel at home in the world. Those are the precise words. And not feeling at home in the world was exactly a description. Mm. And you refer to that quote from, from Jean Amery in, in the book. It's an important book uh, for all of us. Max's alienation from normal life was profound. In and what he, sense? How, how did that manifest itself? didn't have the conviction or the energy to be involved in anything serious, except reading. Reading he could do. And his hope was kind of revived in our friendship that maybe writing could also do something. He, and it's the greatest gift I've ever had in this respect, he believed in. And, mm. I, and, I, and you can't say why. I mean, what did he see? There was no. I was just returned from working out in the north in the scrub, and uh, been doing odd jobs around the place. As a matter of fact, Max at that time was also doing a dreadful job as a temporary clerical assistant, um, stamping um, things, forms, form forty or something like that, in the um, Department of Motor Registration. I mean, uh, our days were dismal. But this is when you met, Alex, when you were in your 20s and Max was in his mid-50s. Yeah, that's when we first met. Uh, and and but he saw in me the possibility of the dream that I had of becoming mm -hmm. a writer, a novelist. And the first night we were together, when we were leaving, he took um, Thomas Mann's amazing book, the um, Faustus, Dr. Faustus, off the shelf and gave it to me. It's a difficult book. Uh, especially in the modern age, to read. I read it, however, with uh, great interest and attention because it had been given to me by him. It was, in a sense, it was a statement from Max's silence that night. Mm. It was a, a vote of confidence. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I can remember the thrill of it, 
kind of the I've still got the copy. Uh, the cover's a bit torn. That's about all. But um, it, it's um, it's also a, a book that's critical in terms of the use of language and the moment when language is challenged by by the decay uh, um, that sets in in Germany in German culture at that time and in Europe. Alex, I'd like to talk a little bit about this idea of Max as your mentor, as, as the word you use, that's the one I'd written down as well, and inspiration. You said that Max encouraged you to be a writer and he convinced you that writing could be a noble pursuit. In what way? A responsible thing. It was responsible. I think that's at the bottom of it. It wasn't something you could just fling off and, oh, see if we can get this published or not. There was none of that in it, an absolute zero commercialism in his approach. It was, it's a really difficult thing to do and it's very serious. What you do will have an effect. It's not going to be part of a neutral world. It's going to be part of a world in which something has been empathised with or understood that will affect the way people who read it think. Mm. And that that is enormous responsibility. Mm. Um, so his approach to it was rather different to the approach that you might have if you were just heading out to try and get published and all that sort of thing and, and had some sort of fanciful idea about being um, a novelist or, I don't know, writing a genre type of book or something. It was finding out first why you should write something and, and then, of course, the challenge of discovering how it was to be written, which I'm still involved with today. The challenge of how to write what I feel needs to be written is, is enormous. It's always the same. It doesn't get easier, as you probably know. Um, each time you do it, you're refining um, something and bringing it to words, uh, which is probably initially a kind of inarticulate um, level of feeling and intensity an opinion that's unproven, um, all kind of mixed up in your head, and you've got to bring it to some kind of structural um, coherence. Um, I, I always think of it, honestly, as, as being like a painter who um, somehow has to con control the whole thing from left to right, top to bottom, um, and make it, uh, give it a sort of focus and presence. And, and, and that's, that's what I still try and do, and I still think of Max... Uh, when I write, I still think, I mean, and obviously with this book, it was a critical, central thought in the book. Um, what would he have thought of this? What would he have thought of me doing this? I want to look at Max's role as a sort of an ideal for you. You said that at least since your 20s, you've looked to Max for your own private standards as a writer. And I wondered why that was. I wondered, is that because Max himself was a writer and that you knew and admired his writing? Or was it because of your admiration of him as a person and, and what he stood for? Yes, the second. The first, okay. he wasn't a writer. I mean, he did write things and I did discover some of the things he'd written, essays mainly. Um, but no, he, he wasn't a writer in that broader sense. Um, yeah, I mean, it was it was the presence of Max and the book. It, it's I think one one reviewer, I think it might have been Tom Griffiths, said that Max is not really there fully in the book, but his presence stalks through the book mm -hmm. like, like a ghost, and that's true. That's I mean, 
The book is actually about the present. It's about the now, us here now, who we are, the people who, on whom Max had an influence, the people uh, who still look back and admire him and still um, think of his silence as this hugely important thing. I mean, um, I can't explain in a few words, I suppose, this is what the book is. I mean, the book is an attempt to bring to life my sense of awe in his presence. And uh, someone also said to me, you seem to be listening rather than contributing whenever you and Max are together in the book. It's true. They picked that up. Yeah, I didn't feel I had a lot to contribute. I had a lot to learn <laughs> and, and I wanted to learn it. Your first piece of fiction was, a, or the first piece of fiction that was published was a short story called Comrade Pavel, excuse my pronunciation, which was published in 1975. And that was based on a story that Max had told you. Could you just tell us what was his reaction when you showed him that published story and what impact did that have on you? Yeah. Well, Max had read a full-length novel that I'd written that was a pre-novel. It wasn't any good. It was about issues of the day, which I thought a serious writer should write about. I was wrong about that. It doesn't have to be about that. It needs to be something intimate. If you're going to be a novelist anyway, there needs to be the intimate lives of us. That's what novels keeps them. That's what keeps them alive. And um, he uh, really chucked that down in disgust. Why don't you write about something you love, he said. And uh, I said, for God's sake, what is this rubbish, you know? Um, yeah, well, we had a party at the, on the farm where I lived at the time and Max was visiting. A group of people came from Canberra, politicians, uh, left-wing politicians like Moss Cass who, weren't, um, who hadn't been in power for 25 years or whatever and spent almost their whole careers in opposition. Um, journalists, two or three journalists and other people who we knew who'd come down for the day and um, bring a cask of wine and some sausage and bread and who would go swimming naked or blowing flutes and playing around and fucking probably um, whenever possible. And then they'd all get drunk and argue about all kinds of stuff around the table, the large kitchen table, which we still have here in this house with Steph and the kids. And um, they'd had this big argument about anti-Semitism and Max was there. He was in the middle of this thing with us. Why was this argument? I don't know. In Moscas was Jewish and there were probably other Jewish people there. I don't know. I can't remember but, uh, what the argument started from. Uh, anyway, it went on, raged on for a while until it blew itself out the way they do and off they went back home to Canberra and left us in the silence. And later that evening when Max and I were having a cup of tea and they had a smoke by the the fire, we was lit the fire, whether it was warm or not. And um, he said, um, do you want to know what anti-Semitism is? And of course, I didn't say, yes, please. I, I didn't say anything. He then told me briefly in a couple of sentences, outlined the story of being betrayed by his Polish comrade. And it was an illustration of the embedded, ineradicable nature of anti-Semitism in the cultural climate of his youth and childhood. And it illustrated that very well. 
And um, he recently told me, why don't you write about something you love while I loved him? So that night I stayed up and I wrote all night. And I wrote this ironically titled Comrade Pavel, as you correctly pronounced it. Most people say Powell. <laughs> and um, yeah, when he, when I gave that to him to read, he read it standing up by the, I gave it to him to read in manuscript, not, not, not as, a, not as um, when it was published in the engine. But, um, and he read it through and then embraced me and said, you could have been there, which to him and to me was saying, you can do it. Mm. This proves you can do it. You can transform this stuff. You have sufficient. I said to him, but what about the detail? What about the caps they wore? And he said, yes, 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 it's all right. Everything's correct. You could have been there with these people. So that sense of having written the story in a way that convinced him, and he had been there. I hadn't. I'd never been there. He'd been there. Um, and when I did finally go there to where he had been, I realised the permeability of that border between um, Poland and Germany, the Oder River, not a great river. You can just about walk across in the dry. And um, that area, anyway. When I did get to the Oder River, um, which was the border, it was difficult to believe. And you realise that a person standing on the far bank um, wouldn't be able to understand a single word of what the person on the near bank was saying because the language of Polish and the language of German are just profoundly different, incomprehensible to each other. Almost nothing in common as far as I know. And I know lots of Polish and, and German people and um, they like people like Oleg, yeah, it's just uh, nothing in common not only between the languages, and when I say not only, I mean language goes deep, deep, deep into us and says things in the silence of the deep, which is where Max's presence was, a sense of presence. A person has a, a sense of presence, a sense of being. As a, as a great story about um, uh, Ustinov, Peter Ustinov, the great English actor, English-Russian, I think, actor, and... Uh, when he came onto a set in Hollywood and saw um, Peter O'Toole, who was then this beautiful, gorgeous, glowing, golden young man standing over there waiting on the set, he go, and Ustinov went straight over to him and said, so what are you doing And um, uh, on the set? What are you going to be doing during this shoot? And Peter O'Toole said, oh, nothing, nothing. I'm going to be doing nothing. And Ustinov said, no, no, no. You do something. Make a bloody fool of yourself. I'm the one who does nothing. <laughs> and, uh, and and it's true to do nothing really well is a rare gift and uh, to catch the attention of everybody and that partly was what Max's silence was it was a doing nothing a saying nothing mm. amongst the babble of people at dinner parties they non-stone stop talking everybody has an opinion about everything whether they know about it or not and Max never had that he never had a gratuitous opinion about anything Alex I want to ask you now about your research about when you first decided that you would write a book about Max. Could you tell us when that was and what made you decide to do it at that point? I decided to write a book about Max when I was about 23. <laughs> I'm now 84. <laughs> the book's finally been out and <laughs> came out in September, I think. And um, I'm 80, I was 83 then. 
bit too young. <laughs> um, look, it's been with me all my life. The implication that sooner or later, one of these books that were lining up to be written would be the book about Max. And the spur was the visit was when your daughter went to live in Berlin. Is that right? Your daughter Kate went to live in Berlin and you spent time there. And in 2014, you were going back to visit her and that's when the idea really started to take yeah. shape, that you would write a book about him. Could you well, tell us, Alex, where you started? Having decided you live in Melbourne, where did you start with your research? Well, we were in um, Berlin, as you say, and I think it was the second or third time we'd been there, really, and I, 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 don't, I can't remember exactly when I've said it was in the book, but I, but I looked at the records when, when I got in touch with the Bundesarchiv, and I think it was 2014 that they came up with the records. But I really started around then, yeah, before we went to Berlin for that visit to see Kate, our daughter, which was our excuse for going. Um, my wife, Stephanie, had said, why don't you write something about Max? And I couldn't believe I hadn't thought of it. And, you know, you've always been going to, she said, this is the time, isn't it? So I wrote to all the um, archives that I could think of or find out about from scratch in Germany, um, inquiring after Max. Mainly what I had was a date and a name, Max Blatt, and the date of his birth. 1907. Hmm, 1907. Uh, because I had that of his um, death certificate here. And you had 1933 as well, the date oh, yeah. of his uh, detention and torture. Yeah, and, and, I had, and I had this other collection of, of fragments, which the, the book details gradually as we move through it. Um, and each fragment is explored and linked in some way to the rest. Um, yeah, and I then, and nobody knew anything. They all, all, all the archives responded pretty well immediately, saying, "We've got nothing. Uh, nothing corresponds to that name and date." And the Bundesarchiv, which is the um, federal archives, um, and at Lichterfelder, um, uh, that particular place, um, didn't respond. And we were in Berlin by then, staying in a flat. And I was about to go to Warsaw on some other errands and things that I promised to do. Um, and um, I got an email from Andreas Horn, Dr. Andreas Horn at the Bundesarchiv saying, well, we found, we found him. Um, and uh, we have all the people who've been consulted have come up with these things and you're welcome to see them. Alex, you said that when you got that email, you felt a mixture of regret and excitement. And you asked yourself if by pursuing this line of inquiry, by looking at these materials, you were betraying Max. I wanted to ask you a bit about that. Why the regret? What was your fear about betraying him? Well, you never know what you're going to find if you begin to search. And uh, as a novelist, I knew what I proposed to do at the beginning of a novel very rarely happens and other things reveal themselves along the way, much more interesting uh, things reveal themselves along the way. And I assumed, and I had trained as an historian at Melbourne, um, and I, I had some idea of what you need to do. Um, it wasn't a com I wasn't a complete blank and I read a lot of history. I love reading history. And anyway, 
wherever I can in my fiction, I have always searched out the facts and um, travelled the world searching for them. So, so research wasn't completely new to me. Um, but what I did feel about this one was that for all those decades and all that time, this sort of sacred presence of Max, my old friend, had been sitting in my mind and in my person for unquestioned and unexamined in some ways too. He remained uh, within the sort of halo of the hero for me and uh, the important um, influence. Uh, and when I got that letter, I thought, Christ, it's real. This is fucking real. Mm. This is not me just thinking to myself stuff, you know. This is um, the Federal Archives saying, yeah, we've got a pile of stuff here. We've got lots of letters and documents and Gestapo uh, records and whatever. Was that a surprise to you, Alex? Was that more than you ever scary. expected? Really scary. Yeah, it was. It was both hugely exciting because, Christ, this is not a mistake. Here it is. There's all this stuff on the one hand. On the other hand, morally, I thought, what am I really doing? What's happening here? Am I really going to be sharing this? I've already started sharing it with the rest of the world. My secret story, uh, I didn't think it was secret because I told, always told everybody and I mentioned Max everywhere throughout my life. Um, it's in all my books pretty well. He's there somewhere. And um, but suddenly I was about to pounce on his realities, his facts, and bring them out. Was I going to write? Was I really going to write about all that? Bring it all out? Well, supposing I found out something that I didn't like or that really undermined my uh, image of him, um, which had sort of gone untested for all this time. But it was too wonderful. And I went, cancelled my trip to Warsaw for the time being, and I went to the Bundesarchiv and met Andreas Horn, who had no English, only spoke Russian and German. And I, I had um, very, very unsteady German, but somehow we spent an hour together and I didn't miss anything. When and I Alec, the material that he gave you, he gave you the two Gestapo files from 1933 and 1939 and he gave you a chain of correspondence between Max and a friend, J Jacob. The most exciting thing, yeah. There are 12 letters here to and from Max Blatt. And you said that they were earlier, um, you said that they were written in that period between May when he was released by the Gestapo from detention and September when he was, the period when he was recovering in Switzerland. So tell us a bit about the content of those letters. Yeah, until the end of um, the year, actually, until December in Prague, when I think the last letter is dated. Uh, yeah, well, the first, the very first letter, I think, was June or July 1933, written from Bern. And sorry, no, it wasn't. It was written actually from Prague by Jakob Valka um, to Max. Valka was an older man, member of uh, Neubeginner and a communist uh, and a comrade who had been closely associated with Max for a long time. He went, he went, for, he was sort of um, living in Prague away from it all, and he then went to Paris and then he went to London where he became the leader of the exiled group there. But um, the very first letter, and I think I might even have uh, put it in the book, in, um, in its original, all these things were written in German, everything was written in German, that was Max's mother tongue. And um, 
in it, Valka says, describes briefly the effect on himself and a number of their comrades of Max's torture, of what happened, the terrible thing that happened to you. And it outlined what Max had already told me um, all those years ago, decades and decades ago, 50 years earlier, Max had told me I was tortured. And that sprang back into my mind the day, the evening, in fact, it was an evening on the farm when he told me that. And uh, I'd lived with that. And here it was in a letter written in 1933 by his comrade from Prague, from the safety of Prague, uh, saying, yeah, we're all, you know, shocked and dismayed. Uh, do, would you be able to, are you any better? Is, are you recovering? It's all true. Mm. It's all true, and I hadn't found everything, but here was this amazing horde that had just been sitting there sleeping in the stacks of the Bundesarchiv all these years. Um, and I think I call it the, the home of the um, German truth. It's there. You can find it there. Alex, it's such a fascinating story that unwinds of your research and how one connection links to another. There's one particular part of that I want to ask you about. As part of that trip, after you'd been in um, Berlin and you'd seen the archives, you travelled on your own to Warsaw. You, the various things you wanted to do there that related to Max, but the Melbourne writer Arnold Zabel had asked you while you were in Warsaw to do something for him. Could you tell us about what that was and why it was so significant, how it really unleashed a chain of events for you that related yeah. to your research into Max's story? Yeah, when um, I think uh, it was at a writer's uh, festival, I think Melbourne, and um, I was talking with Arnold, and uh, I mentioned that I was going to Warsaw, that was part of the plan, and he said, while you're in Warsaw, will you uh, put flowers on the grave of Marek Edelman? I said, sure, no worries. He's in the Jewish cemetery there. I said, that's okay, cool, I'll do it. And it just seemed like a side issue, totally, nothing to do with why I was really going to Warsaw. And um, when I got to Warsaw, I did go to the Jewish cemetery, got there a bit late and so on, and you've read the book, you know what happened. And um, I didn't know who Merrick Edelman was, I'd never heard the name. Um, but I then went to um, the museum um, of Poland, which is the Polish museum, opened in um, Museum of Poland, opened in um, Warsaw. Not quite open, fully open, but they had enough stuff lying around to um, for books and things like that. And they were allowing visitors to sort of come in, have a look, but not, not get to the archives. And uh, I went there and there was, I, know, uh, I noticed there was a, a, a book there by someone, Hannah Kral, and I shan't forget it ever, um, and it was a conversation with Marek Edelman, so I bought it. I thought, well, I'll find out who this guy was. Um, and that led me to Hannah Kral and her wonderful books. I've read everything I can find that's been translated into English. In fact, she and I have been in touch with each other. And um, I couldn't, however, when I got back to Melbourne, find anyone who could help me get in touch with Hannah Kral. And I tried, and I, and I had Polish friends and no, they didn't know how to do it. They suggested talking to the Polish embassy and people like that who, who in the end were no help. And I um, just 
hopped on the train to go down to see um, Kitia Altman, who, who had been very um, influential in helping me to begin this search in the first place anyway. And she was an Auschwitz survivor um, and a great woman, a truly great writer too. Um, and I sat down and um, Carmel Bird, the, the uh, Australian writer, popped into the seat next to me on the train. Um, What's that you're reading? And I said, oh, I just handed it to her, you know. And it was the Hannah Krauss book, which I was rereading because I'd read it straight away in, in Warsaw um, when I bought it. And I was rereading it because I absolutely loved the way she wrote. And it's sort of, I thought, this is maybe the way I can write about Max uh, in this kind of broken, fractured way, mm. leaving things off, not really talking about what we're talking about and wandering around the way I love to, talking about other things that come into the mind on the way. And I handed it to Carmel and I said, I'd love to get in touch with this writer, you know, just to thank her for, for the work she's done. It's bloody wonderful. I just love her writing. And, and uh, I said, but I can't find anybody who's ever heard of her. She said, I know someone who knows Anna Crowell. <laughs> so this, uh, this is still following on from Arnold's. Request for you to, request. to lay flowers at the cemetery. Okay. Yeah. So she, she leads me to um, a chap who wrote to me yesterday, actually, Stefan Ehrenkreutz, who says, so Stefan and I meet in St Kilda and have coffee, and lovely man, beautiful man. Have all these lovely chats, and he um, says, "Well, I, I didn't know. I don't really know how to crawl, but I know a couple of people in Poland who can help you." So he then puts me onto these two people, Dorota and Jacek, uh, in um, where are they in Lubin. Okay, and they immediately respond, um, and Jacek in particular comes back with a. I mean, the connections then flow to. When we go to Poland, my wife and I, um, part of going to Poland is, is seeing Dorota and Jacek because they're going to help us in all sorts of ways. They immediately jumped in. And this was one of the great things, one of the really hugely impressive things about this whole search was the way people just jumped in and started helping mm. people and wanted to help. You say that throughout the book, all of the people in Australia and overseas, anybody that you told the story to was just so keen to be involved and to help yeah, you to I mean, piece this story together. They became part of the story. Mm. People like became part of the story and they're in the book, of course, not only in acknowledgements, they're actually mm. part of the... Part fabric of the story, the yeah. Fabric of the story, absolutely, because it's a book about us now and, and what happens, but... When we got to Poland and saw Dorota and um, Jacek, um, Dorota says to us after they'd been wonderful, travelling around um, Silesia where Max would have, would have known the place intimately and places we went to, and, and she said, Dorota said, well, tomorrow you have to um, come with us and meet um, Alexander Glaskiewicz, who is the chairman of the local Jewish community. Um, Oleg Glaschewicz, as you now know, became, he and his wife, Benta Khan, uh, became close friends. They visited us here twice since then, stayed with us here in Castlemaine. And, and his daughter ended up going to Melbourne University, I saw. Oya went to, uh, did a master's degree at uh, Melbourne. Um, and his son, Daniel, he's also visited us here. Yeah, so these, again, these were links related to Arnold's innocent original request while you're there. Mm. 
whales, blah, blah, blah. So mm. Oleg and Bento, it turns out Oleg's father had a very similar story to Max. Mm. And Oleg, in the end, in fact, almost at once, talking, sitting there, drinking coffee in their offices downstairs, um, and um, this, is, this is in Brotswaf, in Brezik, which was Breslau, which was uh, Max's old town, sitting there drinking coffee and talking. I immediately felt I was talking to someone who understood more about this than I did. I mean, obviously, he's Jewish. He grew up in the culture. He'd been, he actually grew up in Russia, uh, where his um, father had escaped to, and um, Norway, where they'd taken refuge because Oleg had been imprisoned because of his activities with Solidarity. And the family was a family of resistors, father and son mm. and wife and everybody. They were a family of people who care and still to this day care intimately and passionately about keeping totalitarianism at bay, which is no easy task in Poland these days because the Polish government, whether you know this or not, is has um, really diminished dramatically, almost obliterated the, uh, the legal fraternity, their, their um, independence of opinion and thought from political pressure. And uh, this is critical to establishing totalitarianism of any kind. It's always the way that the legal profession mm -hmm. begins to yep. service the um, political enterprise, yes. Yes. grim and nasty as it is. And it's also anti-Semitic. Uh, uh, again, it's this whole business of the world turning to the right, uh, places like Hungary and America. We've seen 72 million people re-voted for Trump, for God's sake. What did he have to do? Um, so... It's like the friends in America who say, do they want another Holocaust? Wasn't mm. one enough for them? Mm. A movement to the nastiness, drawing back into that whole area language and everything goes with it. It's all taken and deformed in horrible ways. Um, well, Oleg and Benta set up a trust in Wrocław, uh, which was really their home where they should be living if all these other disruptions hadn't occurred. Uh, generational ones, um, and they are fighting the good fight there today. Alex, I want to just come to talk about this concept. You've referred to it several times, and it's a it's a running theme through the book of of the way that Max's story is really fragments of the whole. You call your chapters fragments. You have an epilogue which refers to a quote about shards, and you say that he shared those fragments with you like the shards of a once beautiful vessel. The more you learn about him and what happened to him and what happened to the Jewish people during World War II, the more you begin to realise that to, act, to try too hard to fill in the gaps to tell a complete story would be to deny the tragedy of the story, would miss the truth of it. You say... We can't have complete stories without falsifying the more terrible truth of the real loss. Talk a little bit about what you meant by that. 
Well, so much was destroyed. So much of European civilization, so much of the languages of Europe, German uh, itself as a language was made a mockery of its, of its um, previous strengths. I'm not talking about um, uh, Eastern Germany, Prussian, the Prussianization of the language, but, um, you know, beautiful language that had been used by um, the writers and thinkers of Germany before Nazism um, and, and, and even under the Prussians, it, it, its militarization had, had damaged it heavily. Uh, but it was just completely uh, raped, violently destroyed by the Nazis, misused in the most horrible ways. It hasn't fully recovered. How can it? I don't think. I mean, the thing is that the Holocaust arose from the midst, the very center of European civilization. And we can, if we begin to forget that, where it came from, where it arose, what its precedents were, and what it's the situation of its thriving briefly for 12 years was, uh, then we are doomed. We have learned nothing. And with the movement to the right today as it is, people, there are famous book, um, Herm, uh, what's his name, uh, Brock, Herman Brock, uh, The Sleepwalkers. Uh, we're doing that again. If we allow ourselves to forget how the Holocaust arose, it's more important than the Second World War. To remember it is more important than the Second World War. Because if we forget it, we, we then begin to sleepwalk we then begin to imagine that we're somehow getting civilized again and that, uh, no, it didn't come from some other planet. It wasn't War of the Worlds. It didn't come from some other thought processes. It came from the absolute dead center of European civilization at its best. A bit like what, what Max said, isn't it, when he looked into the eyes of the torturer and he yeah. said, I realized that my torturer was my brother. Yeah. I mean, why? Is it so important to remember the Holocaust? Why is it so important to keep talking about it? For that reason. For that reason, that's where it came from. Alex, my final question is this. In an interview once, you were asked what strongly held belief did you have at the age of 18 that you do not have now? And you responded, at 18, I believed in the moral progress of our species. I'm wondering... Why do you no longer believe in that? And is it because of Max and what happened to him? Well, I think it's also life, isn't it? That uh, I think at 18 I was probably pretty naive. And, um, yeah, I know. I know I, uh, why don't I believe in it now? Well, Is it because of Max? Is it because of what you've learnt about him and about well, partly, partly, but I think I'd be uh, I think I'd be a real sleepwalker if I still believed in the progress of the human species. We haven't. I mean, the arts anyway don't progress; they change, they develop, they move. But unlike science, uh, thank God for uh, medical science, which has saved my life three times so far. Um, uh, the novels we write today are not better than the novels that were written in the 19th century. They're different. They're not better. Whereas the uh, medical science is better. And so is the um, all the other elements of scientific thought is better. It's, it's an improvement. It's, it's made 
progress. I know there are people who think that Joyce, James Joyce, somehow redid, rejigged, or re whatever the language. Uh, he didn't. He, he did it for himself. And um, post Joyce and Joyce Joyce like writings and experimental writings. I've been in a in a kind of mad world for years and years, decades. But um, there was no progress involved in that. They weren't getting better and better. We're not getting better at doing these things, at dancing or writing novels or singing or playing music. Those things stay the same in the sense that they service us in our present. Uh, reading a novel that's 300 years old is as interesting as reading, more interesting usually than reading one that was written yesterday. And I think there's a novel every 10 seconds or something being published in the world. <laughs> Alex, thank you so much for speaking to me today on Books, Books, Books. As I say, I've been reading your books for many decades. Uh, some of them are some of my favourite books and it's just been a real privilege to speak to you today about this very special book. It's very clearly uh, a passion project for you. It's a book that's taken you a long time to write but um, I think it will have a lasting impact. Congratulations and good luck with, with it. Thanks, Nicole. It's been wonderful talking to you. Thank you for listening to Books, Books, Books. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleabbotty.com.au to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Abbotty, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. Since it's a new podcast, it would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon. Thank you.